the Sunday Sermons Podcast. We're also thankful for all the visitors, anybody who's here for the first time or one of the first times. For all of our church family, we're just thankful to see all of you. And those who are joining online, thank you. It's great to be able to celebrate Palm Sunday together. Uh, Almost exactly 2,000 years ago, we're getting really close to... It's within a decade or so of almost exactly 2,000 years. Jesus marched into Jerusalem. Actually, he rode into Jerusalem, but it was a big procession. It was a big parade with so much intention. And as we celebrate that today, we're going to also at the same time be looking again into what we feel like he's calling us to do next. This is the third in a series called Grow, How to Grow. Uh, We started it several weeks ago and had a little break last week. Great guest speaker from Johnson University. But I'm excited to be back with you guys today, and we're going to keep that going. This acronym GROW is an old one. It's uh, been around. It was created by John Whitmore and his company many years ago. They've used it to grow ball teams and businesses. Uh, We're using it just as a kind of a framework to look at actual biblical truth. This is not where we got our plans. It's just a way to talk about them. So one more time, if you could see that up there, the acronym stands for Goal, Reality, Options, Will. And the goal is, if you're going to actually get somewhere in anything, and in our case, that's building the kingdom of God, you've got to know where you're going. You've got to actually be looking at something specific or you probably will never get there. The second thing is we're looking for what is the reality? Where are we right now? If we know exactly what point B is, what is point A? How how do we get there? And options, where we are today is, so how do we actually get from point A to point B? What does that look like? What's that journey look like? And then the the will is the resolve to make it happen. So again, a couple weeks ago we looked, our goal is to be as much the church Jesus dreamed that we would be as possible. We look at the teachings of Jesus himself. We look at the example of the first church that we see in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 when they're described in all of their actions. We see, kind of read between the lines and all the stuff that's just, you can't misunderstand in the epistles. And we go, okay, this is what the church looks like. And as best as we can, in 2023 America, we're trying to recreate that. The reality is we're actually doing pretty good in many ways, but we've mentioned several ways we know we need to grow, and we're asking God to strengthen our hands. Remember that story, Nehemiah, up on the wall a couple weeks ago? We're asking God to strengthen us and to help us get there. So again, here we are today. We're looking at the biblical concept of wisdom, which is making the best possible choice under the circumstances, strategically following The will of God. The prophet Zechariah was the one who spoke in the era of Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah as they were rebuilding the temple and the wall after the exile in Babylon. He was one of the ones that God sent. And in that era was the first time these words got spoken. They're rebuilding the wall and the temple, which is something they were afraid might not actually happen. And then they hear this message from God through Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And just so you know, donkeys in the past, as goofy as they look 
That was one of the things that kings would ride around on as if they weren't going to war. It, was, it, was, it wasn't the coolest looking thing, but if they were on a donkey instead of a horse, it kind of symbolized peace. But in this era, I promise you, they were going, wait a second, we're getting a king? There's no way God's restoring the king. That's not what any of the other prophets is saying. And so instantly from this point on, they took this passage as messianic prophecy. They understood that whoever Zechariah was talking about here, this king that would come into Jerusalem on a donkey, a king that would come in power and in peace was going to be the Messiah. That was something that they understood from this point on. The next verse says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. And if they just say the river, they mean the Jordan River. Everybody knew in that area what they meant by the river. This is obviously Jesus. Looking back now, we see that Zechariah in this era is talking about Jesus. And from this point on, as people were looking for the Messiah, they were looking for something like this. They weren't sure if it was going to be literal or metaphorical or maybe both. They didn't know exactly how it would pan out. But somehow the Messiah would come in as a peaceful king and somehow his kingdom would affect the whole world, not just Israel. Fast forward to Palm Sunday. Fast forward to the day that Jesus very deliberately made this happen literally so that he could actually say, I am the Messiah. His disciples did not understand these things at first. John tells us in chapter 12, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. This is another crazy story. And if for some reason you've never read the story of Lazarus, you never heard it, you need to take some time today and go back and look up John chapter 11, right before what we're talking about today. Amazing story. So much insight into the heart of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the strategy of Jesus. There's, it's just an amazing story. But the bottom line for our purposes right this minute is he knew. He knew that if he brought somebody back to life that way, He knew what would happen. He knew what that would trigger. He knew that this was kind of the beginning of the end. He knew that this would be the week before the Passion Week. John 12, 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So this is one layer that's happening. One layer is just series of events. Jesus knows that if he raises somebody from the dead, they're going to really get excited about killing him and Lazarus so that people will stop thinking he's the Messiah. At the same time, he's very deliberately about to fulfill this prophecy from Zechariah and declare himself to be the Messiah. At the same time, and we spent a lot about this at this time last year, he's also fulfilling every single prophecy, every single teaching about the Passover lamb. 
He's making sure that he enters Jerusalem on the same day as the lambs that will be sacrificed. He's making sure that he gets anointed on his head and on his feet on the same days. Every single symbol of him being the Passover lamb is all happening at the exact same time. This is Jesus. This is the kind of strategic options that Jesus was always pursuing. Those two guys that he sent after the donkeys. Can you imagine how crazy that must have felt? They're going to somebody that to them is a stranger and just start untying his donkeys and leading them off. And and Jesus' whole plan is, he said, you know, if they give you any trouble, just say, the Lord needs them. How well would that work? If if I went downtown and saw a really cool motorcycle and I start like getting on it, the Lord needs it. How well is that going to work? Probably not very well at all. But it was working here because I, I'm pretty sure, knowing Jesus, pretty sure he had that planned in advance. I'm pretty sure that guy had the donkeys tied up in a certain spot. The disciples just didn't know about it. That's my personal theory. Here's what we know for sure. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. Brothers and sisters, that's always when good stuff happens. Not when we just say, well, you know, he's Jesus. He probably knows what he's doing. I I guess I believe that's the right thing to do. When we actually do it. When we actually go and do what he asks us to do, that's when the amazing stuff happens. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd, not all the crowd, even Jesus never pleased everybody. Have you ever noticed that? That's really encouraging to me sometimes, all the time. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground. And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed after him shouting, were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. It's always interesting. I encourage you as you read your Bible just on your own or in groups to always, whenever you see a word that's not an English word, there's a reason that they leave it in the original language. It's, there's no equivalent in English. Some of you, if you've been here a while, I've already said this a bunch because I think it's important that we understand those words in general. So I always point it out. So here it comes one more time. Hosanna is a very specific word that we don't have in English. It means help or save me, but it also at the same time, it implies you're the only one who can. Imagine, here's how Hosanna works. Imagine you're in a building, you're on the second floor and it's on fire and you're trying to get out and you're panicking and you go, help. That's English help, okay? But imagine in your panic, you have the presence of mind to grab a chair, bust a window, and look out the window. And when you look out the window, there's firemen out there, and they've got hoses, and they've got ladders, and one of them's coming toward you. And you look at that fireman, and you go, help to that fireman. That's Hosanna. Are you with me? You're saying, help me. You're the only one who can, all at the same time. And blessed, uh, there's layers of what that word can mean. It can mean several different things, but the core idea is that you're, you're in a spot where you, you can connect deeply with God. That's how we can say things like God has blessed us with things that we actually enjoy and make us comfortable and happy. And Jesus could say things like blessed are the poor, 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You're in a spot where God is going to be able to work in and through you. Being blessed scripturally doesn't necessarily mean you're going to feel good. Doesn't necessarily mean you're going to feel happy. It means you're going to be connected with God and his power in a transforming way. So they're shouting all this to Jesus. Save us, the only one who can. And you are connected to God in a special way. This is a fancy way of saying you are the Messiah. But again, we're looking at this story and we're trying to see, so what do we do about it? As we follow the example of Jesus, what does that look like today? And I believe it's going to look like two things. Like Jesus, we need to pursue God's will biblically and strategically and courageously. To pursue God's will biblically is we keep going back to the scriptures themselves. And if we realize we're getting something wrong, we fix it. And if we're doing something right, we lean in even harder, no matter the cost. To do it strategically means we're constantly not just saying, is this okay? Are we sure this isn't wrong? But what is the best possible choice to make in this instance? In light of everything we know about Jesus and everything we know about everything right this minute, what is the best possible choice we could make to build his kingdom? That's what it looks like to live strategically. And to pursue God's will courageously means you're going to do those two things no matter the cost. This is so clear in this story of Jesus. If you're writing stuff down, there should be some sort of a Bible study in your bulletin. It looks a lot like this. You can start writing stuff down. If you're not, that's okay. But I, I hope that you go back and read those scriptures later and let the Holy Spirit walk you through them one more time. But if you're writing stuff down, the first things you're writing down is God's will and the word translation. I'll just read this straight off the page. It says, like Jesus, we pursue God's will biblically. While every tribe and tongue requires a specific translation. In other words, we need to hear God's word in our own language. We need to hear it in a language that we understand, that we can feel. But that's not just the language we speak, the words we say. That means we need to translate it into our lives. Does that make sense? Do you understand what I mean by that? It has to become ours. It has to be something, this is what we do. This is how we roll. This is who we are. Every tribe and tongue requires a specific translation, but we dare not rewrite or reimagine the actual text. To some degree, God empowers us to adapt how, when, and where we obey him, but he always determines what we do and why. Baptism is a good example. It's pretty clear in the Bible, as the church started, that they, Jesus taught it. Jesus did it by example. They practiced it from day one. This was how the church started, 3,000 baptisms on that first day. It was pretty clear. We have a lot of flexibility, though, they didn't have bapt- baptistries, little cool little swimming pools right there, right behind the stage. They didn't have a building. They didn't have any of those things. In my life, I've seen and done baptisms in hot tubs, bathtubs, swimming pools, the lake at camp, the lake down here, this baptistry. The idea is not the water. The idea is not the dunking. The idea is you're dying and being rose to life again in Jesus Christ. You're going through this ritual that he taught us to go through in his honor. And however you get that done, if you're being immersed 
and brought back out in honor of Jesus, something amazing happens. We got a little bit of flexibility in how and when and where, but we dare not recreate it from scratch. Does that make sense? Back to the story here. Uh, actually, let's go into that for a second. I love that in Acts 2, when it first gives the idea of baptism, it says, for the promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And after the, that day, on that day, when 3,000 people were baptized into Christ, now we start to see them living out Jesus' dreams. And this is a part that I think a lot of times, no matter what we think about uh, in, in, in regards to the word salvation in English, modern English, we, we tend for some reason to miss this. God's idea of salvation is not just about where you go when you die. It's about being saved from one kind of life into a different kind of life. Being framed not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. You're actually freed from the whole thing and set free to do different. They clearly understood this. Day one, listen, listen what this church was like. Remember, this is our goal. This is what we're trying to reach. This is what we're looking at. So how our reality, how close are we? How are we, how are we getting there? Today, we're talking about the options. How exactly do we get there? But, but again, listen to the, this, is the, this is the hashtag goals church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. They're defined by their unity. They're defined by their commitment, their shared commitment to these things which is exactly what Jesus had been praying for and had been teaching about all along. Remember, during the Passion Week, we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about this next Sunday, but he, his, one of his final prayers for all of us was this, and this is specifically for us in the middle of his prayer in John 17. I do not ask for these only, his disciples that were there right that minute. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You see, it, see one of our first clues yet? One of the options, one of the strategies that has to happen if we're actually going to reach the goal, get from wherever we are right now, to the next step and the next step and actually do exactly what God wants? Unity. We choose love. We choose commitment. We choose to work together. We choose to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We don't have to agree about everything. We don't have to understand every single word of every single passage in the Bible exactly, but we choose, we're all going to do this together. We are going to look at what the Bible says often and try and apply it to our lives. We are going to fellowship together. We are going to break bread together. We are going to pray together. And we are going to do our best to live this thing out together. That's the strategy. Did you hear it? That's one of the key ones. Don't miss that one. 
Here's Jesus again. He keeps going. He says it again in the same prayer. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And so we see the example of the church. All who believed, and again, we're saved by faith. We're saved by God's gift of grace, not by anything we do. Baptism or any other thing we do is not a work that we do to earn salvation. It's not a ticket that we purchase and therefore God has to save us. It's not something that we do, some sort of an incantation or ritual we go through to make him sin us his favor. It's something we do just to, just to say, okay, if that's how you want it, yes. Yes, sir. But that's what faith looks like in every direction. All who believed, everybody who said, okay, I really believe that. Here's how we know. They were together and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had deed. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Because they saw this was something amazing. This is a kind of unity, a kind of love that just doesn't happen normally. They want to be part of that. By the way, this is where we get a lot of the strategies that we use all the time. A lot of the strategies we're trying to use more and more as this year goes by. Not only meeting together and communion and so many other things that we do even here this morning, but all of the groups that we have, Sunday school classes, Bible studies, uh, growth groups that meet in homes or here or wherever else, um, meals and other ways that we share food and that we work and serve people. All of these things we're getting from this One way or another, we're trying our best to follow this example. We're trying to live out the love of Christ in tangible ways and especially in the ways that they did here. And ultimately, that goes back to the example of Jesus himself. So he's riding the donkey in. There's this big celebration. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then he gets off the donkey in front of the temple and starts tearing things up. It was very intentional, very clear. And not really tearing things up. I say that jokingly. He starts pushing things over. He starts getting all the animals and all the people out of there. He's teaching along the way. He's not freaking out. He's not cussing at people. He's not completely lost it. But he's making it happen. He's very efficient. He gets the job done. He's very effective. It gets done in a way that they never forgot about it. We're still talking about it now. Jesus cleared the temple and restored it at least for that week as a place of prayer, a place that he could come back every single day that week and teach. Actually, a large percentage of the stuff that we still have that Jesus said, he said that week. He probably said it 
other times as well. But the people that were there, right there that week in the temple hearing him, they're all writing it down. People are compiling it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and all the other people eventually pass it on to us. But a lot of what we know that Jesus said, parables that he taught, and things that he did, miracles he did, it happened right around then. That's why this week is such a big deal every year that we celebrate. So much happened around this season. But what you see is Jesus pursuing God's will strategically. If you would, write down those words again. God's will. And would you say this out loud with me? Like Jesus, we pursue God's will strategically. Here's what that means. It means that as the body of Christ, just like Jesus, we need to accomplish his will efficiently, which means the stuff that just has to happen, feeding the hungry and all those kind of things. We just got to make sure it gets done. Get it done somehow. So it worked together. Everybody use their gifts and your resources. We got to make this done. And also effectively, some of the stuff Jesus wants us to do is really hard. Maintaining unity, for example. And trying to actually transform, trying to be like Jesus. Even with the Holy Spirit inside of us, even with a printed word of God right here in our back pockets and right in front of us in book form, in any version we want, on the computer, anywhere we want, we have more access to God's word than anybody ever has ever in history. And even with all of that, it's, it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to actually transform. It's hard to actually be like Jesus. So we got to be strategic. That means choosing the best possible choice under the circumstances every time. And I got to tell you, every time I say that phrase, under the circumstances these days, I can't ever shake what my uh, late friend Janice Bricky said. Uh, she lived most of her adult life in a wheelchair. And at one point, she was talking to somebody in a prison where she was visiting, and and she asked them how they were doing. And they said, well, I'm doing okay under the circumstances, which makes a lot of sense to me, coming from somebody living in prison. But Janice put her hands like this above her, and she said, we don't live under the circumstances. We face our circumstances. We deal with our circumstances. But we live under the banner of the power and the love of Jesus Christ. The circumstances are just the obstacles we have to face along the way. I'll never forget that. Remember Nehemiah a couple weeks ago? Working away on the wall and these people start trying to interrupt him. And they're threatening him. And they're trying to get him to stop and come down and have a meeting about something. And, And he's like, no, no, I don't have time. I'm doing something really important. I don't have time to stop and have a meeting with you guys. And he knows they're up to no good. He, he, he's worried about it, but he's, he's not going to stop. Well, part of the way that was so easy for him to make that is he'd been making that choice for quite some time. That story is in Nehemiah chapter 6, if you remember. Rewind just a little bit. Here's part of Nehemiah Four. It's the same people still messing with him. And the same time, they, the, the time that they did, let me try this one more time. It's the same people messing with him. But the first time they messed with him, here's what they did. He says, from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, half held the spears and shields and bows and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. And those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand 
and held his weapon on the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. They knew they had to keep going, but they did it strategically. We got to protect ourselves, but we can't stop. So they figured out a plan to protect themselves and keep working at the same time. That's what strategy looks like. And this is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus already knew the best option. But he took time to willingly, consciously, prayerfully choose it. That's what the the garden was all about. That, That story, that one wrecks me so hard every time. Jesus asking questions like we all ask in hard moments or strategic moments where something good is about to happen, but the devil doesn't like it and we can feel him trying to bust us up. He's asking the same questions. What would happen if I don't, for example? That's actually a good question, by the way. Quick life hack moment. These ideas about grow, these ideas, these principles we're talking about expressly how to scripturally build the kingdom of heaven, they apply in a lot of different areas of your life. And if you're trying to choose the best possible option in anything right now, some good questions is, who might be able to help? Who might have gone through something like this before? Maybe I could get some advice or maybe some encouragement or just bounce the idea off of somebody. Another one is, what could I possibly do to improve the situation? Is there anything I could do that would just get rid of this or this or this or that distraction and at least let me focus on this one problem? Is there something that I could do to make things a little better? And another really good question is, what would happen if I just didn't do anything? A lot of times when I ask myself that question, that's the very precise motivation that God uses me for me to say, well, I better do it then. But Jesus ended that conversation with God saying, not my will, but yours be done. And that's what it looks like. Let's say this out loud together. If you're still writing things down, you've got to write God's will one more time. And then let's say this. Like Jesus, we pursue God's will courageously. That means we do it no matter what. Like Jesus, we seek to accomplish God's will on earth no matter what the cost. We've got to keep moving from just information about Jesus to transformation that we're liking. From information about what he'd like church and family, friendships, marriages, dating relationships to look like, and to transformation where it actually looks like that. This is one of several journeys. We spent a lot of time on it uh, a couple weeks ago. Not so much time today, but let me remind you. Again, this is not condemnation. This is not saying any of us are not doing any of these things ever. That's not it. But we are all on a journey constantly. And here are some of the things that we'll see along the way if we're going God's way. We're going to be moving from not just acceptance to belonging. We don't just say, well, yeah, I'm here. I get along. 
That's this friendship right now. That's this small group right now. That's this church right now. That's this workplace right now. Whatever. We, we commit. I, I'm thinking about this whole Jesus thing. We commit. We move from just knowledge to action. We move from tradition to intention. That doesn't mean we reject traditions. It means instead of just going through the motions... We're constantly remembering what those things are there to accomplish. We don't fight about things like baptism. We try to remember together on a daily basis that we have died to sin. How dare we live in it any longer like the communion meditation. We have been died. We have died with Christ and we have raised to life. Let's live that way. One of my heroes growing up and still is uh, to this day is a missionary named Jim Elliott. He and a bunch of others died trying to reach out to some um, indigenous people in Ecuador and they killed them for it. Eventually the whole group of people came to Christ just about and it's a wonderful, beautiful story. But this is one of my favorite quotes ever. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Would you say that out loud with me? This is a very courageous quote that I love. I'd like it to stick. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. But much more than following Jim Elliott, we're trying our best today to follow the example of Jesus Christ, who all those years ago on this day, Palm Sunday, he got all of the balls rolling in the same direction. He threw off everything, all the safety nets. He got everything out of the way. He said, okay, here it comes. I am the Lamb of God. I am the Messiah. I am on my way and I know this is gonna get me killed, but you guys have no idea. That's not the end of the story. Here it comes. And that's exactly the kind of commitment that he's asking for us from us, that he's encouraging us to make. That's going to look a little different for each one of us this morning. I don't know. Maybe it's a very private thing. Maybe it's a very public thing. Maybe it's a personal decision you've been wrestling with. Maybe it's something you need to start or give up. I don't know, but I'd love for you to take inspiration from Jesus himself here as we wrap up. Hebrews 12, 3 says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Is anybody besides me a little bit weary or faint-hearted right this minute in some area of your life? A couple honest people out there. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Face it. Do what he's calling you to do today. Do what he's calling you to do tomorrow on the other side of today. Do what he's calling you to do. Do it. Be courageous. Whatever you need to do right this minute, we encourage you to do it as we stand, as we sing. I'm going to go to the back to pray with anybody who wants to just pray privately. If you've got a public decision to make, come up here to the front. God bless you.